everything else that we talked about, the cancer, the biracial marriage, the step adoption, like all of that shaped my 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 life. And, and I see good in all the bad because I know that I could do it. I want females to know if you're dedicated, you do whatever you want. You know, as long as you're willing to work for it, whatever you, you want to be a mechanic, you can do it. You want to be a pilot, you can do it. You want to change oil, you can do it. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Glossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Michelle Tanzi is in the driver's seat today. Michelle is the co-owner of Dub Clinic, an auto repair shop in Santa Clara, California, that specializes in Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, and Lamborghini. This police officer-turned-auto repair shop owner shares her story of defeating cancer, the journey of adopting a child, the launching of Dub Anatomy, a car education class for women. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Michelle Tanzi in the hot seat or driver's seat today. How are you doing today, Michelle? I'm doing good, and you? I am doing very well. Thank you for joining me uh, on Femcanic Garage Podcast and having a little chat about your career, how you ventured in, and how you ended up landing into the automotive industry. We met at the Women in Auto Care conference earlier this year, uh, right before this whole pandemic started. Uh, so luckily, we were able to get in a little uh, girl time <laughs> to women in auto care <laughs> event before we went into isolation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. That, that was a fun night. It was a casino night where we played with funny money. Uh, all of it went to charity. Yes. But that was a lot of fun. I'd, I'd never actually done a charity event like that. And be surrounded with a group of amazing women is always a good time. Always a great time. This It was my second time joining um, the Women in Auto. Um, and I uh, our shop was actually a sponsor for some of the items that were raffled in that casino night. So- nice. And, and just so the listeners know, the name of your company is? Step Clinic. We, we are a Volkswagen and Audi uh, specialty shop in um, Silicon Valley, California. That, that's cheap living there. Dripping with sarcasm. It's interesting because, <laughs> you know, I, we meet all these women um, in the in the automotive conferences, and they're talking about, oh, you know, our overhead's so expensive, and and I hear them say, you know, I pay like fifteen hundred dollars for a forty eight square feet shop, and it's just so expensive. And I'm thinking, like, oh my god, I pay seventy two hundred dollars for a forty six square foot shop, and um, I mean, I understand, you know, cost of living here is more yeah. expensive, but we also make more, we charge more hourly. But it's just interesting when you see the de- the difference in demographics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what it means to be a million dollar shop here um, 
isn't the same that it means to be a million or one point million dollar shop in the Midwest. Um, it's it's just interesting to for for me to see that it is. Um, or or when I attend uh, other conferences with like other owners in. And you see the demographics as well, like just technology, like we're paperless. Uh, we even take payments through like payment links if they want to do it through email, through text. And um, then I hear other owners, oh, we still send out our, our monthly coupon flyer, you know, in the mail. And I'm like, what? I do everything through email <laughs> or like social media, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's interesting to see, like just changing demographics or how I feel some women are feel about being women in the automotive industry, depending on what state or what region of the country they're in. It's- it is, it is mind boggling. And it's, it, it's very interesting because for me, I don't own a shop, but to sit on the outside and kind of watch and listen to all of this, but I, I don't want to be spoiler alert this early in the podcast. So what I'm going to do is actually back up. And even though I had a pre-recorded bio that the listeners got a little bit of a background on you, I want to dive in a little bit and kind of turn back the clock, so to speak. And if you can share with the audience, how did you end up in the automotive industry? (laughs) Yeah, Um, it started, I think, in, oh, I want to say, oh, six. I was actually working um, at a Volkswagen dealership, one of the local ones here in our area, um, part-time while I put myself to school. I was um, going to school to, to become a police officer. And um, I was a police officer um, during that time as well. Um, but you're kind of going through a program where I was a scholarship student through the city of Mountain View. And I was... Um, you know, putting myself to school. I was working there part-time as the receptionist for the service department while I put myself through school and put my hours in at the station. And it just kind of like started there. And even then at the early age, I was probably like 19, you know, you don't realize um, how male dominated it is until like, you know, you start growing up a little bit there and you start thinking like, it was only two girls and we were office employees. So um, the receptionist and the cashier, and then you worked with like 20 men, you know, of all age groups. And that's kind of like where I got started. And then I ventured off after like maybe three years of, of doing that into another male dominant industry. You know, I was a police officer uh, for about seven years. Um, and then I got sick. Um, I had cancer. I want to point out something in what you're saying right there. That's past mm-hmm. tense, listeners. She had cancer because she's I, a badass <laughs> and fought it. <laughs> I've been very fortunate. I've actually had cancer twice um, within that, that time frame. Um, you know, wow. I got sick. Uh, I did treatment for about a year and a half. Uh, it wasn't any aggressive chemo. It was. How old were you when you were first diagnosed? I was 21. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I, I got to pause you there and give mm-hmm. the listeners an opportunity to process that. I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking what I was doing at 21, Michelle, and that wasn't even a thought in my head. Yeah. 
I mean, just legal drinking age and you feel like your whole life's ahead of you. Wow. What prompted you to finally go to the, like, not finally, but go to the doctor? So it's, it's interesting because we're, we're kind of in the same situation currently. So when I was diagnosed originally, it was in the whole swine flu epidemic, you know, that a lot of people have forgotten that there was an epidemic for the swine flu. Um, and I kept getting sick and it was just common like flu symptoms, you know, like I had fever, I would need rest, I would take time off of work, I would, wouldn't go to the station, you know, and um, I'm a kid, you know, I now realize I'm still a kid, you know, I was 21, I was already living on my own, you know, working, going to school at night, um, have two jobs, but I was a kid and, you know, I, I call your, and any kid calls their mom, right, and I would be like, my mom would call and say, you're sick again. And I'm like, yeah, I think I have a cold. And, you know, mom's, oh, you're not getting enough rest. You're not eating right. You know, take some time off. And, of course, you know, you stay home for three days. I feel better. And it was a constant for, like, three months. I was sick on and off with c- common flu symptoms. And then until one day, you know, I had a really bad fever. And I'm like, you know what? Something's going on. I'm just going to go to the doctor. And I went to Kaiser. Um, and they tell me, oh, you have the swine flu, you know, now it just, it angers me so much to know they misdiagnosed me because of the epidemic going around, you know, they're saying, oh, she's showing all the symptoms of, of the swine flu. She must have the swine flu, you know, so they pumped me with like antiviruses. I did quarantine in the hospital for about like 10 days. They had me in there in isolation, pumping me with antiviruses. You know, and of course, can you walk through just just to let the the listeners know? And it's one thing to say isolation, but you mm-hmm. are twenty one years old at this time. Yes, isolation means what exactly? Just so people really bring it full circle on what that really was. So, oh, you get hospitalized in a sense, you know, and that you. I was there for about like a, a almost a full day, and then you go into isolation at home. So I, I'm not sure how they're handling the, the COVID-19, but back then, if you weren't showing severe fever symptoms, then you weren't uh, a carrier. You know, you're just sick. You're not contagious anymore. You can go home. So, you know, I'm, I'm at home and they tell you, like, you have a swine flu. You have to kind of, like, uh, isolate yourself. So I'm 21. I live in a different city than than my, than my parents. Um, not far, but, you know, more than, like, 20 miles away. Um, and I'm alone, you know, and, um, my boyfriend at the time, you know, lived, but worked. So I'm like at home with like fevers, just pumped with antiviruses. And, you know, until one day I'm just like, it doesn't feel good. Like after they give you isolation, I I went back again and they're like, well, I'm not, I don't understand why you're not getting better. Everybody else is getting better with this medication. I'm like, well, I mean, run some tests, buddy, you know? And um, they came back and my white cells were super uh, crazy. They were like skyrocketing. And normally white cells normally is like your immune system. So there's something going on with your body that my white cells were crazy. My body's trying to fight something off. And then it happened to be that it was cancer. And I have a really rare uh, form of cancer cells. I, I always say I have because I have them. You know, they are awakened. I am I've been in remission now for for a while, but I always like to 
consider myself completely blessed uh, because I went through that situation when I was 21, did chemo uh, treatment, went into remission. At 25, I relapsed again. And at that time, I decided not to do chemo anymore. I, I did something that now it's known. Can, Michelle, I want to pause you for, for one moment. What was that like? Like you went into remission and then it came back up? I think the most like proper thing I could always say is like I for me, you know, and to all the people I talked to about my my whole cancer um, situation, I always say the second time was the one that shocked me and hurt me the most. Uh, physically, like emotionally, like my soul, I always feel like the second time around was the one that had the most effect in me as an individual and my family as a whole. And um, I think the reason why is that's the first time in my life that I realized that you don't have to f- be sick. I mean, I'm sorry, let me rephrase it. You don't have to feel sick to be sick. You know, the first time I got diagnosed, I was sick. You know, I had symptoms, like I'm getting sick, I'm losing weight. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking like something's wrong with me. So I was expecting something to be wrong. You never expect them to tell you, hey, you have cancer at 21. But I'm thinking like, there's something wrong with me. I caught something, did I eat something? Like what's going on? But the second time at 25, it's like, you know, I went through not aggressive chemo, but it's aggressive to your body, if it makes any sense. And I think only cancer patients will understand what that means. Um, I still had like, you know, nosebleeds, lost the weight. Um, I'm a female, so you start feeling different, you know. And at 25, I'm going into remission, finally feeling like myself again. And I just go in for my random six-month lab check, and the doctor says, hey, you need to come in, I need to talk to you. And off the bat, you know, something's wrong with my labs, you know. And he says, I'm sorry, your cancer's back. And that's when I that's when I got more shocked because I, I did not see it coming. I'm feeling normal. I'm a 25-year-old woman living my life, uh, you know, starting a whole new career. Because of the first situation I was put into thinking, let me reflect, do I, do I want to go back to do this or what do I want to do, right? And, and by that, you're talking about going back to being a police officer. Right. Yeah. Got so, it. Uh, so I was debating, you know, it, is it worth putting my life at risk, these hard hours? And at the time, even though I had a couple years into the force, you're not really a considered high up ranked until you put a lot of time in, you know? Um, and I'm like, what? I'm trying to kind of reevaluate my life. Like, what do I really want to do? Um, and at the time I was already married, um, the second time I relapsed and you know, I'm sitting down with my husband, of course, he's all like, you can do whatever you want. You know, everybody's giving me all these speeches. And like, I I was always aware of that. But I think this is the time where it hit me the most. And then the the immunotherapy is very different from chemo. So it takes a different toll at your body, it like challenges your strength. It's not as consistent pain. It's like I would suffer for like a, a three days straight. And then I'll, I will have like 20 something days awesome before I went in for my other round of shots. So um, 
I think a lot of that changed and shaped me into the kind of like person that I am now. Um, but it, wow. yeah, I, 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 it's, or the toll it took on my family the first time, you know, it's just chemo. I, I did it all on my own. You know, I would drive myself to chemo, come back, um, try to take my mom to not be so much part of it because it wasn't as aggressive. I didn't want to worry here. Our family had no idea what cancer was. You know, you just hear it and people think you're going to die right off the bat. Like it's something serious. So I'm like, hey, I'm fine. It's nothing bad. Doing this. So it was easier to like kind of hide um, the bad stuff from your family, you know, because I lived a little bit further and I was a busy body and it was like, I'm fine. I would make my appearances to family things, you know, family would visit. The second time I needed more help. So you were first diagnosed at 21. You relapsed at 25. Yes. In between 21 and 25, you got married to your husband that you're with now. Yes. And, wow, I'm sitting there processing it. Yes. Previously, you were Mm -hmm. a police officer. At what point did you decide, hey, I'm not going to go back and do that anymore? I'm going to switch careers. Right. I think it was when I was maybe 23 is when I said, um, you know what, I'm just switching careers. And, you know, the more, the more I think about like my, my professional career, you think like, Oh my goodness, I'm something else. I went from one uh, heavy male dominated industry to another, you know? And why did you decide to go the automotive route? So my husband at the, at the time was my fiance. Um, I was just finishing my my rounds of chemo. The first time I got diagnosed, you know, he proposed, we got engaged. I'm trying to get healthy and it takes a very long time to get back to your normal self, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm just talking and he's saying, you know, you should go back. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to get healthy enough. I'm going to get strong enough. I'm going to go back. But life happens when we're making all these plans and you feel totally different once you go through an experience like that. And it makes you see things that were there that you say, is this really what I want to do with my life? If I really, if my life ends today, is this what I want to do? You know, and my, my sister always tells me, you have like this hero syndrome. Maybe that's why you were a good police officer and that's why you wanted to go into it. And it did hurt a lot when I decided to let that go, but I just decided that I could help people in a different way with switching to this career. You know, at the time, Bernard was uh, a foreman at a local dealership in our area, um, uh, which is my husband, and he reached the totem pole. He basically said, you know what, I'm not going to be anymore. The next step would become a, a service manager or service advisor, and I, I don't want to do that. And I said, okay, we'll try a different dealership, see what you could do. He moved around to every Volkswagen dealership in our area, was the foreman, used to run the shop. And then I finally told him, just, it was just a, suge- a suggestion. I said, what about if you open up your own shop? I always, and I'm going to take credit for this when he listens to this interview, <laughs> because it was my idea and he thought I was crazy. He said, you don't understand what it takes to like run a shop. I don't know if a lot of people don't know, but to listeners out there here in California, it's about $75 to buy a fictitious name statement. 
and about $150 to get a, a license in the city you're going to operate. And that's basically it. And obviously, you know, find a place. So uh, we started slow. He was still working at the dealership where he was. And we lived in Santa Clara, which was a different, different cities. Um, and he rented a slot from an independent shop. He just rented one, one rack. And he started building his own clientele. You know, he started marketing on like Craigslist back then, opened up a Yelp, um, and was working Monday through Friday at the dealership, Monday through Friday at night at the shop where he was renting, and weekends. So this guy was working seven days a week, about 14-hour days. And he built his own clientele. And then um, he was doing that on his own with advice. You know, I'm holding down the fort at home, working at a uh, auto body shop as um, their office manager and then moved into uh, helping them do pretty much a lot like their accounting and stuff like that and production. And then um, he built enough clientele for the brand where I, I just told him, like, why don't we just rent? our own shop and just take out all, all of our savings, you know, like our 401k, my pension, you know, I had, I worked seven years in the force. So I had a, a decent pension. And I said, even if I lose a little bit to take it out, let's just put all of our savings in there. Your 401k, my 401k, my pension. Let's, let's go all in and get a building. And Wow. Michelle, I, I have to, I have to pause you here. Talk about, conviction and belief in your husband and uh, yourself, right? Right, right. Wow. I, I, you know, my, my thing was uh, Bernard is very uh, a complex thinker. He's super intelligent. He owns his craft. He's one of the best. He's the, one of the only master technicians recognized by Volkswagen, the manufacturer in the West Coast. I have dealerships sending me work when specific cars come in. Because they don't have a certified technician in their dealership that can't work on that car. So they sublet it to our shop for him to be the one that works on it. That That's how much of like, it, he would probably be like, who can I compare it to? I would probably say he's like the, like the Michael Phelps of like Volkswagen in my area. He's he's pretty amazing. He's a, he's very dedicated. Not just because he's my husband, but I do have to say, as an individual in his craft, he makes sure he stays up to date. You know, he I he's always it. working. He's he's a, he's just a complex thinker, and I'm like more of like a, a I see the big picture, right? Right. Uh, now, when, what when I think I told- is interesting around this, Michelle, is. Um, and just to for the listeners to understand, you guys co-own that. You both own fifty, right down the the middle, fifty percent of the shop each. Right. And mm-hmm. you shared a story in the pre-interview with me where you wanted to start. You and uh, another female coworker mm-hmm. wanted to start a uh, kind of like a training, if you will. Uh, for women to educate them around their cars. Yes. Can we can we talk a little bit about that? Yes, and of course. There is, you know what? 
there, there's something that you mentioned that I just thought of in the pre-interview, mm-hmm. and it ties back to the cancer that I, I, I want to, I don't want to lose sight of, what? and one of the biggest challenges. And I know there's many, but this is a big one for women in the industry is figuring out how to be a mother and be in this industry, be taken very seriously in this industry and be a mother, a wife, be family oriented because this industry praises the individuals who are workaholics. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. It's You're rewarded and praised for doing the 14-hour days. And when you have a family, or if you're in certain roles in this industry, such as a painter, and you want to have a child, you can't. You obviously can't paint and be mm-hmm. pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I know that wasn't your situation, but there was, because of the cancer you mentioned in the pre-interview, that you and Bernard made a decision where you would not be, you wouldn't get pregnant for right. because of the potential complications from all the chemo you had at a mm-hmm. young age. Um, but Bernard came to the relationship and he had already had a daughter. Yes. And it's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd be willing to maybe chat and give a little background around that, because I think it's a beautiful story and a beautiful testament of what's possible. In the pre-interview, you had mentioned that Bernard is white mm-hmm. and your um, heritage and background is Mexican. And uh, Bernard's daughter is white as well, correct? Yes. Do do you mind sharing a little bit of that? Because I think that just speaks volumes. It's a beautiful story. And the fact is you're a mother uh, in this industry. And I think that's an important thing to talk about. But do you mind sharing a little bit of the background on that? Yeah, of course. Um, when So, like you mentioned, you know, Bernard came with a, a child into the relationship. He um, fought for her during the beginning of our relationship to have her full legal, full physical custody of her. How old and was she then? I At the time, I believe she was probably like six. And it took it. him, it, it was, yes, yeah, so I started dating him and she was five. She turned six. Um, it took him about two years for him to get full legal, full physical custody of her here in California. Um, California favors the mom and me as a female, like I'm not going to complain about that, but going through processes like that, you start seeing like uh, how the system works. You know, it's not, not every guy is a, is a bad parent. Like he wanted his kid. He wanted to make sure that he can provide and, and not have to seek a mom that's kind of lost in a sense, in case something happened to her, because she, she's just a child, you know, kids get sick, kids break bones, you know, kids need stuff. So um, I, I told him, you know, I think that you should go in and ask for full physical custody. Like we couldn't even get a passport for, for her. We couldn't take her on vacation. Like if we wanted to go take a vacation, he would have to leave her. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was going through cancer treatments. We were talking about getting married and, Obviously, at the time you're thinking, you know, I'm young. I want to have. I'm going to have a family. What's going to happen if we have more kids? I don't want Alexis to ever feel like she's any different from any other kids. If we, 
you know, extend our family. So um, together, both of us uh, went to court and fought for him to get full legal, full physical custody. After two years, it was granted, you know, and after that, we got married. Um, I had to wait to do a step-parent adoption. I had to be married for about a year before I can file through social services as a step-parent adoption uh, for me to legally adopt her. Um, she was probably around nine at the time. Um, Alexis just had a, an 18th birthday. She's a senior in high school. Um, I, I got to I gotta rewind a little bit, Michelle. Why did you decide to go ahead and file for legal adoption? I realized that I don't have any other children and she is my child, you know. I, I at times even tell my my husband like she's more mine than she is yours. In, in a sense, it, it sometimes I forget that I didn't birth this kid, and it might sound to other moms out there I don't want to be bashed, and they say like it's not the same, you know. It 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 kind of is. Like I I can honestly tell you genuinely like she's my kid. Alexis is white by race, but she was she she my my child speaks in Spanish. She's 18 years old. She's a senior in high school. Um, she says she's Mexican. I'm half Mexican. You know, I'm half white. I think you're, she is the sense for me. She is probably one of my biggest accomplishments. You know, she, mm. I wanted to make sure that she didn't feel like myself. I come from a broken home that you might say, you know, I'm first generation Mexican American. Um, my mother immigrated from Mexico, you know, did everything right here, you know, went to school, she legalized her stuff, had a good job, was a single mom of four females, you know, put us to school, we're all accomplished adults. And I wanted to make sure that I could offer her that, you know, just because somebody didn't feel like they could raise you doesn't mean that you're not wanted. Like I wanted, you know, I, I chose that, you know, some moms, you know, want to have kids or they just get pregnant and they're like, Oh, we're, ha we're having a baby. For me, it was a choice. It was a choice I made in my life to assume that responsibility. And I made sure that when I decided to assume that responsibility, that it was going to be forever, whether I stayed with her father, because you know, you don't know what could happen. You love each other. Now you don't know what could happen later. I wanted to make sure that she got, if something happened to me, that she's entitled to my social security, that she's entitled to my pensions, that she's entitled to my 401k, that she's entitled to everything. And a lot of parents that take in kids without fully adopting don't realize that, that it's okay while you have them because you're here to provide. But what happens when you're no longer here, if something happens to mm, you, you definitely. know, and for me, that was super important, you know, having cancer two times for me, it was like, oh, okay. It was very real. It, yeah, it becomes something real. And, you know, on top of all of that, I wanted to make sure that I could actually be a parent. You know, I, I had an extraordinary mother and I wanted to make sure that I can provide that as well if I was going to assume that responsibility. And M Michelle, let me let me ask a quick question. If when you when you adopted her, did the biological mother have to give up her rights? Yes. And <laughs> it's, it's super strange because I, I don't understand. This is, I don't want it to get political, but you don't realize, you know, the stuff that 
like our government until you're put in that situation. Like, now I'm a step parent. Um, her birth mom hadn't been around. I mean, she was probably nine for about four years now. Like, Alexis hadn't seen her at all. We lived in the same city, probably like three miles away from her. Hadn't made no attempt to to visitation to want to see her. And you're telling me that four years. This was between the ages of four and nine or I'm sorry, five and nine, five and nine, and, five and, and nine years old. I, I have to I'm just blown away by this. Like I if if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I have two children. I have a 12 and a nine year old in the idea of not seeing my kids for two weeks straight if they go with their their other mother on vacation is hard for me. It is like I can't even fathom that, to be honest. I mean, I used to compare it a lot when she was younger, you know, after me being probably like about a year fully invested with her. Like she she doesn't leave. So a lot of like friends or moms would ask me like, oh, is it hard being a step parent? And I never I could never relate to that because for me, she never left. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's hard to say that I was a step parent because. I'm a, I'm just the parent. I'm I'm the mom and she's the kid and there's a husband and there's a dad, but yeah. she doesn't leave on the weekends or yeah. comes over for dinner. Like she lives here. Like I'm her parent. And and, and that is, you know, as strange as it sounds, Michelle, like I I have joint custody with with my ex, their their other mom. Mm-hmm. And there's there's two things. Um my my children, my ex carried both of our children. Um, she's the biological mother. We used an anonymous donor, uh, the same anonymous donor. So Jaden and Jordan are 100% siblings. They're not technically half siblings. Mm-hmm. And it's what you said earlier around that's your child. And I didn't, they don't have my DNA. Jaden and Jordan do not have my DNA. But I am their mother. Does it, I, I, I'm the one that cut so their umbilical cord. We can relate. I didn't birth them. Mm-hmm. I, they do not have my DNA, but they are my children. So I completely understand what you're saying. And it, it's, it's less about blood. It, it, it really is. I, I think even watching her grow up, or sometimes even now when you I listen to her speak Spanish, she is, looks white. Like if you look at her, her appearance, you would think, oh, you know, she's she's white. And you hear her speak this beautiful, fluent Spanish. And and people go like, oh, whoa, you know, like what's happening here? Or even when you see us, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm younger than her dad. I'm six years younger than her dad. So, you know, I'm under 40. I'm 34 years old. Bernard's going to be 40 this year. And she's 18. So when they see us, we get all the stereotypes, right? Oh, she must have had her really young. She's Mexican. You know, the the dad's white. Um, oh, I get it why she speaks Spanish now. You know, stuff like that. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally understand, Michelle, when, when, my, when my partner and I go out and she's Puerto Rican. My children are biracial. They're half black, half white. Mm-hmm. But they could easily pass to be for Puerto Rican. And when we go out, I mean, I'm I'm like the fourth wheel. It's like who's the white girl? 
These are clearly my my partner's children, not not hers. (laughs) But I I am totally with you. And there's something that you shared with me, a little story that you shared with me. And and if 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 it's okay with you sharing um, about your daughter asking you to attend a funeral with her, it's right. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful story, and I'm gonna after that story. I'm gonna bring the listeners full circle and tie this back into the automotive. But are you open to sharing that story? It's a beautiful story. Yes, of course. Um, Alexa's uh, biological uh, great grandma uh, passed. Um, she was sick for a very long time. I want to say about three years ago, um, and we got a phone call from her. Uh, biological grandma saying, Hey, Michelle, I wanted to let you know that my mom's going to pass. Um, she's been asking about Alexis. We would really like it if she's willing to come and like say her goodbyes, you know, and I'm, I'm, I've always been very neutral with Alexis when it comes to her biological, uh, mother's side of the family. I was always super open. I, until a couple years ago, constantly invited them to after I got married I I adopted her I decided to say hey let me invite them to birthday parties graduations any accomplishments that she had you know any extracurricular activities that she was in until you know Alexis basically said it's making me uncomfortable if they're uncomfortable then that's when I stopped trying you know I did what I think any good parent would do I put my feelings aside for one my kid wanted to do. Um, and she reached out, you know, I talked to her dad first and I said, Hey, you know what? They reached out. Um, seems like her great grandma is going to pass and ask me if she wants to come. Her dad off the bat, like Bernard just has a different type of relationship with the other family was like, no, I don't think so. Don't even tell her. But for me, I, I wanted to make sure that she knew, So I, you know, she was probably like, this Alexa was like, gonna turn 15 at the time I think she was 14 and um, she was a freshman in high school and I just sat her down and I told her like hey you know your grandma reached out and it's funny because when you talk to Alexis and you say grandma she thinks it's my mom you know (laughs) so I'm like hey you're you know we always say um, her birth mom's name you know let's say Jamie's mom reached out and said that your great grandma is sick and she's gonna pass they want you to go say your goodbyes. It's totally up to you. Um, Alexis is, I know that she's very sensitive about my title in her life. You know, she tries to protect my feelings a lot to reassure me that I am her mother. And um, I, I always tell her, I don't need reassurance from you. I know my place in your life, you know, but if you want to do this, I will totally support you. And I asked her, you know, dad could take you. Because, you know, Bernard knows them. I, I don't know this family. Um, so, you know, dad could take you to go see her and you pay your respects, but it's totally up to you. And she asked me, well, what do you think? What would you do? And I told her I would do, I would probably go because that's the type of person I am. And at least I know I went to pay my respects and I did, I my conscience is clear. You know, I did what I had to do. And she said, you know what? I think I am going to go. Um, I don't really know her that well, but uh, the type of memories that I have, she was always really kind to me. I said, okay, well, let's go. Have that take you. And then she says, I'd rather you take me. I want you to take me. I feel more comfortable if you call mom instead of dad. 
And I was like, okay. You know, as, as, as an individual, you're like, oh, God, I'm going to be put in an uncomfortable situation. But for my kid, that's what she wants me to do. Did that pull on your heartstrings at all? <laughs> it, it does. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it does, but it's, it's weird. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure you could relate. I mean, we're not the birth parents of our kids, but they're your kids. And it wasn't, mm-hmm. for me, it wasn't like I hurt because she wanted to go and I was going to see these people. I was hurt. I, I hurt for her because I knew she, she's a kid. She's a teenager. She doesn't understand. She thinks she does. She doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. And when I put her in the situation and she went, when she put herself there, when it hurts as a parent, right? We're there. She's saying her goodbyes to, to her, her great grandma. And um, she's talking to her and I'm just sitting on the side chair and there's a lot of nurses coming in and out. So um, Jamie, which is her birth mom, actually entered the room and Alexis looks at her face and like any individual, like if you're at Target walking around and you meet somebody's eye contact and you continue on doing what you're doing, not even acknowledging the person, you acknowledge a human, but you don't know who they are. And in my mind, I thought she knew who she was, right? So Jamie comes up to me and goes, hi, Michelle, how are you? And I go, hi, Jamie. And when I said her name, you see Alexis look up and like her whole demeanor changes and like she's hiding behind me. And and I'm like, oh, you know, we just came. Alexis wanted to see Rose and, you know, did little chit chat. Hey, we're going to get ready to go because I saw Alexis kind of nervous. And she's walking kind of behind me the whole entire time hiding from, from her birth mom. And we're walking and we get to the car and she starts crying and she tells me, and I go, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, she's crying because she feels like something, right? So your heart breaks. It's like this, this thing where you're like, you have to be a good parent. Like you don't say anything bad, you know, (laughs) and she's crying. So my teenage kid that I raised is crying there because she saw her birth mom. It broke my heart when she told me why she was crying. You know, she tells me. I go like, it's okay, you know, like, don't be sad and stuff like that. It doesn't matter. Like, I'm your mom and I'm giving her like this whole spiel, right? And she goes, no, no, stop, mom. I'm not crying because of that. I'm crying because it's so sad that I did not know who she was. Mm. Like, I I don't have any picture in memory of her. So she says, it's just sad. Oh, wow. So my kid is 14 and she's crying because it's sad. But you don't recognize somebody's face. So wow. it, it, it does something to you, yeah. you know, as an individual. And Wow. Uh, it, it's- and, and see, I, I want to help the, the listeners understand why, why I'm taking you down this path. You, you are such a good example of how you can be in this industry and still be a mother, still be a wife still do those things, right? Mm-hmm. And what beautiful stories of connection. Um, and, and it's a blended family as well on, on multiple levels, right? You're technically a step-parent and also culturally blended. What a beautiful story in bringing this full circle where you and your husband have owned this shop for how long now? The shop has been up for, I think about six years um, after we became a corporation, when I came in as an owner, we've owned it. Um, this is our third year. Yeah. So a total of six years and three years incorporated. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what, uh, it, it's such a beautiful, it's- beautiful thing. And there is, I mean, talk about 
women empowerment, right? Here you are being a role model to Alexis. And then you don't stop there. You are in the shop and you shared some stories around what it looked like to start up this female um, education for your customers and even women that may not be your direct customer, but ultimately to help women. Mm -hmm. What a great, great story. Do you mind sharing about that process of how you introduced the idea? Yeah, of course. Um, I just had this idea, you know, we're going through our numbers with uh, admin and she's saying, you know, we're trying to come up with more marketing strategies for growth. And she goes, Hey, did you know that 75% of our clientele is female? And I'm sitting there going like, really? She goes, yeah. Um, and if you think about demographics, it shouldn't have surprised me as much because, you know, I'm in tech Valley. Uh, I'm in Silicon Valley tech pedal of the world. There's a lot of female engineers, you know, that buy more expensive cars because they can't afford it. There's more professional women now in our area that can afford these luxury cars. Um, and they're servicing it better than men. You know, going back into just the industry itself, it, to me, it's I'm super passionate about this. And you could probably tell in my voice how passionate I get because I started thinking so much, you know, why do why am I not aware of this being a female owner, you know, and she's telling me, well, we, we should probably market more to them. And we're thinking of marketing strategies and she's talking, you know, doing what she's supposed to do. Cause that's her job. And I'm, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why haven't I really sat down and digested this as a female owner of a shop? Why haven't, why am I not aware you know, and then we talked about, okay, she says, I told her, you know what, Jenny, I slept on it, I came back the next day. And I told her, I want to do like a women's educational course, you know, I want to open up the shop for our female customers. So it started with me wanting to do it for my female customers. I want to educate them on stuff. What are the most questions that the front desk is getting when you're trying to sell them repairs or you, what you, when you're telling them what's wrong with their cars or when they come and make an appointment. So we sat and had like a four hour meeting about all the questions and stuff like that. So I, of course I don't work on cars, you know, I probably could work on them if, if I had to, uh, or I could learn how to. Uh, but so I reached out to some of the Bernard and the master technicians in the shop and I told them my idea. They're probably going to hate me, but they, it was such negative feedback when you start thinking about this. You know, I heard stuff like, it's not going to work. A whole bunch of chicks teaching other chicks. They don't know what they're talking about. Other people try to do it. It's on YouTube. Like, it doesn't work. It's just girls don't know what they're talking about. And and then when I digest it, it's like sitting like, I am your boss and I'm a female and you're telling me this stuff. I want you to take a moment and even the listeners to think about this stuff. But at the but to be honest, I don't blame them because there is that sort of bias, right? That because you're female, you don't know much about cars. Absolutely. And he's saying, how are you going to teach them if you don't know? And I said, okay, buddy, but I could learn. And what makes you think that I don't know, right? So this whole, like when we formed dubs anatomy that's the name of, of the women's group uh, 
Can you repeat that again? What is it? Dubs? Dubs Anatomy. Um, since our, our shop's name is Dub Clinic and Dub stands for Volkswagen. Um, Volkswagen owns uh, like Audi, Porsche, stuff like that. So our company's name is Dub Clinic. And we wanted to kind of keep the same like Dr. Dubs and Dub Clinic and our whole like theme going on with the women's group. So we came up with the name Dubs Anatomy to teach women about their vehicle's anatomy and their health needs and, and have them fully really understand. And uh, we needed help from our master technicians to do that. And the most empowerment that I think me and Jenny got out of forming this, aside from how many women have come to our workshops, even if we have one of the 10 that come engaged, that's already changing. That's us doing something for our community. But the biggest compliment was the turn of events on how the master technicians react to the course now. You know, they we fully took, me and Jenny customized the, the workshops, um, told them, hey, we want to teach uh, warning lights. This is what we have. Can we verify the information with you? Can you show us what to do? So we are fully teaching the course. So they wanted to, at first, Bernard was like, oh, maybe one of the foremans, we should teach the class, have you guys kind of be there. But we were like, no, we want to be the ones that teach it. There's more empowerment for women when they see a woman doing this stuff. And you can relate, okay, she's an, I'm an average female, you know, I'm, I'm five, six, I weigh 150 pounds. I'm, I'm average. If she can change her wiper blades, I can change my wiper blades. It's different when you see six, four, 220 pound guy lift, or if I can change a spare tire, they could change a spare tire, right? I wanted to make it look realistic for them to know. It's going to take us like 30 to 45 minutes to change the spare because we don't do this every day, but you need to know how to do this in case of an emergency situation where you can't call a tow truck to come and do it for you, you know, with the type of traffic here. Um, but even then, sometimes even the female customers look at you and they go like, oh, she's a girl. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I want to talk to a mechanic. So for me, the main sense was with these courses and the marketing, the promotion I was going to do for these, these workshops, I wanted to start the change with my female customers. Let them know that just because Jenny's a girl or I'm a girl doesn't mean that I don't know what your car needs. You don't know either. So if we can change and educate each other at that time, we can create that change within them and then we kind of even empower the master technicians. They're out here more excited about every other month. Hey, what are you guys going to teach now? Um, I think that you should do this instead. It would be super cool. You, you know, they start making suggestions. Now it wasn't more of a negative bias comment. It's more like, hey, you guys, you guys could do this. I have them without being asked. They're promoting it on their own social media. You know, they're talking to their friends or female friends like, hey, you guys need to come to this stuff. Uh, our boss, which is a girl, and our admin, they're teaching these classes. Like, then you start making, that's when you really see the change, right? When they gave me all that negative feedback. You know what I love about that so much, Michelle? Is that the, what, what makes this story unique in my eyes is the fact that you're both on the administrative end mm -hmm. and you're making it a priority to learn it. And when these women come in, 
what what a great thing to share with them. Hey, we're on the administrative stuff. We're not certified technicians. And we learned this. And it goes back to like what you said. Part of it is, you know, hey, I'm a I'm an average female and mm-hmm. I'm doing this, right? But not only are you an average size female and you can do it versus like you said a 6 foot man and, you know, but you're you're on the administrative administrative side of the business and they're not intimidated by the fact that you're a master mechanic or something. That's another thing that when you reach out to men, like for me, they're men. So I'm going to say men. When I reached out to, to the men um, in, in our team and we said, hey, we want to do this, I wanted to stay far away from them being a part of it. And, and I'm super clear when I speak, even to my team. It wasn't that I didn't want them involved. It's just your involvement is helping train us to make sure that we are going to give them accurate general information on this topic but it has to be from us that's the only way that you will actually see the impact because you have to be relatable they have to be able to relate to the person that's teaching them you know do you learn better from a teacher that's different from you Uh, even in high school some of my favorite teachers were young teachers that could kind of relate to me we had the same likes and um, I can even tell you like my English lit teacher was African-American. Um, he loved hip hop. He was probably like 25 and he was teaching one of the most boring subjects in the world. I was more engaged in his class because of who was teaching the class. So because if I could relate myself personally, I'm more enhanced to pay more attention. Um, and we've gotten such great feedback. And I told my team, you know, you're men. But this is a women's group, you know, in, and when you guys are here, they're more like they laugh now. They're like, well, you just use us as your as your handyman. We're like your assistants. People will be like, hey, pass us that. Rent, they're your you know? Vanna. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Or like we, our last course before this whole epidemic came out, because we, we can't have workshops, uh, was in February and we did breaks, you know, and we're teaching the difference between drums and desk and we're trying to tell them what a break flush is. Like a lot of people think, oh, that's an upsell. And we're like, no, that's actually the, one of the most important things in your brake system. If you don't have fluid, nothing's going to work. If you don't have fluid to provide that hydraulic pressure, you don't have brakes. You can have brand new brake pads. You can have great rotors. But if you don't have fluid, you have no brakes. And to teach them, they're like, really? They're like sitting and I'm like, yeah, trust me. I was super surprised too. And like when we talk about, they go like, Really? You can own a shop? You're this deep deep in the industry and you don't know about cars? I was like, yeah, I'm learning along with you guys. And that's the impact, right? To make it our priority. Wow. That's pa- that is so powerful. And I think that's a great message for all women in the industry, right? Not just the mechanics, not just the painters, but for all women in the industry that even if you're on the administrative side of the business, blow the doors open. Think outside the box. Challenge yourself. What a great, great story. Because the story often is told that, you know, a female mechanic leads it. I have so much respect for both you and and Jenny on this and tackling this and doing this and diving in and learning it. I I just love it. How many total shops have you had so far? Or classes, I should say. I've done three. Um, Just three of them. We hold them every other month. And we started... uh, um, in December, 
So normally we'll have, we have a month, the month that we have off, we prepare for the next workshop. We prepare the newsletter. Uh, there's a newsletter that goes out the month. We're not doing the workshop. There's a newsletter going out to our members from the previous workshop. Um, we're even thinking that if this continues that we can't have people, we might even do virtual workshops just because, you know, uh, we have members that, that signed up and we have such great feedback. Uh, once we hit it in social media, we even have women that are not our customers that don't drive Volkswagen or Audis attend, attend the classes. That, and, and that we, is great. Yeah. How many we, members do you have now? We had about 120 that signed up. Wow. Yeah. And, and you just started this in December and we've been isolated for a couple months. Yes. That is impressive. And the only thing that we're struggling with is trying to get big groups to come. We have about like an average of 10, right? And that's where me and Jenny go like, they sign up, like, why don't they come? Or when we send out the newsletters, you get such great feedback. Even in the newsletters, we try to be so detailed where they get the newsletter. They also get like, uh, we always do like uh, the workshop and then we do a demonstration of something like when we did. The do you want to know like, why they don't show up? They're intimidated. And I know I, I'm telling you, well, I, I if it's coming from you guys, it may be a little less of that. Mm -hmm. And it's more of you just got to keep hitting them over the head six, seven, eight, ten times. Yeah. And then eventually their calendars align and. I I I, I notice that when I around the podcast, you, you just got to keep the grind going, and they'll eventually you'll you'll see that steady flow. And this pandemic isn't helping, but I, I really hope you guys stay at it because th this is huge. It's these little things that become big things, and and I want to give a shout out to the men and to both you and your husband for creating a culture in your shop that you had mentioned that it was met with resistance at first, yes. but the fact that they have come around, that's huge. It's so big because for the needle to really move in this industry, it cannot be just women. Right. And not only are you guys educating women, but the fact that the men are now advertising it it becomes way bigger of an impact that that you ladies have made by doing this, not only for women, but the men and how they see women around this. Kudos to both of you. It's outstanding because even like the foreman, you know, they, um, Jose is, is our assistant foreman and he was like, hey, you should reach out to like part vendors. Let them know what you're doing. Maybe they can sponsor some stuff. We, for our, when we host the workshops we have, uh, we offer unlimited mimosas, you know, and uh, we always have like a spread. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. I mean, we're catering to women, right? Bernard used to tell me, I feel like you're thinking too much in depth. And I go like, hey, this isn't like guys hanging out in a garage coming to learn stuff. I'm catering to women, professional women, that when they actually come here, they're taking time out of their day to come here. They want to learn. So we want to make sure that the information is accurate and that I can provide something for them, something fun. Um, we have one of our customers that hasn't missed a single one since she signed up. And I actually want to give her a shout out, Melissa Gunn. Um, she is amazing. She's even wrote like posts like on her social media, tagged us on it. Like you guys have to come like this is genuine. There is 
a lot of people also think because we're a shop that there's that there's a pull on it. Oh, they want us to go. They're going to sell me something. Not, none of that. You know, this is strictly like just education catered for females. I wanted to make sure that women had uh, transparency in the automotive industry because I feel like we deserve it. You know, whether we're employees, whether we're customers, we deserve that transparency. We wanted, I wanted to put a strong emphasis in, in all female drivers. And I've got such gratification to know I have a lot of even college young females that come and attend that want to learn about their car and they ask questions like they get engaged and even the the master techs when they're there they go like wow I was really surprised when you know Jenny's doing the demonstration on how to change the spare like women got off the chairs and walked to the car they wanted to see what Jenny was actually doing they're not just they don't just come to kind of like oh I'm here to learn they're actually engaged and I think that's to me most gratifying that I got out of it where you see even the men in our team saying what you guys are doing is awesome mm -hmm. when when we were met with resistance when we were met with negativity like it's not gonna work you know a lot of girls are doing it they don't know what they're talking about it, it's not gonna work I think it's not great but you know they were kind of like they're part of our team they're like oh sure we'll try it and then first workshop hit and they saw the engagement they saw the impact and then all of a sudden they're all super pumped so even we need them behind us in this situation. So absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you. And I know Jenny does a lot of work on it as well to both of you. I thoroughly appreciate what you guys are doing on the West Coast out there to further empower women and educate women. And I think this may be a perfect time to launch into the red line round. Right. Now, are you ready for that? I am ready. What the red line round is, is it's just five rapid fire questions. There's no right or wrong answer to it, Michelle. Whatever pops into your head first is the right answer. Awesome. Let's All righty. I'm excited. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? Um, I feel probably Bernard, to be honest. Um, just seeing his dedication to what he his craft I think has been one of my main inspirations for just so you know too like a lot of the growth now after we got incorporated a lot of it was because of me and uh, I'm taking credit for that but um, his dedication is what fuels my motivation you know to say you can't just cruise now I always tell him B you can't just cruise now because you know you built something more than beyond just working on cars you know, we went from, you went from one guy to a company that employs seven people, you know, wow. there, there's more to it. So he, he is one of my biggest inspirations for me to, to be able to do that. It feels more of my motivation to, to do what I'm good at, what, what my craft is. Beautifully said. Number two. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck? I reach out a lot to like uh, my women in auto group. I, I feel like any women in our industry needs to have a great group of people that they can reach out to. Um, one of uh, you have to be able to ask questions. You have to kind of create your own network. Um, 
whether there's females. So best advice for me, it's like I, I had a group of even men. Um, I'm part of the auto association. Um, so I have men, I have like little group chats through it that I ask questions like, what are you guys using for this? Or when I get stuck on this, like, what are you guys doing on this? You know, I read anything that I possibly can. Uh, you know, I, I subscribe to uh, Ratchet Ranch. Uh, I read their magazines. Um, I'm on their on their app. I, I, you have to make sure that you Google stuff, uh, get information, read a lot. I'm a firm believer. Like you read anything that you can possibly get your hands on because you never know when you're gonna come across something that's gonna inspire you to, to kind of flick that light bulb and say, hey, this might work for us if we do it this way. It's not copying an idea, but you, I constantly come across a, an article here or I read something online or um, I subscribe to newsletters and you'd never know where an idea is going to spike to try to help you. Like Being resourceful is what's going to make you be successful in this industry. And you have to have a good network of people that you can reach out to and and say, hey, how did you come across this challenge? And you have to be able to ask questions. Um, you, you don't get what you don't ask for. So you have to put yourself out there, you know? Absolutely. Michelle, what excites you most about what you do? To be honest, I think what excites me the most of what I do is the fact that I am first-generation um, Mexican, and I'm a girl <laughs> in a very heavy, dominant industry and I'm very good at my job so a lot of it I take a lot of pride in it that's what I'm talking about girl <laughs> you know on top of just being a woman in the industry I had the top of it like I'm I'm Mexican you know and uh, my skin is brown and it's not white so on top of that I even add more onto that um even when when we attend like these women conferences like I was talking to Tammy she was um she was the head of, of the women's in auto. I know she turned her crown in um, to another queen, but I even told her, like, it's not as diverse as I would hope to be. Yeah, it, like, it's I, not. I know. So, so for, for, I mean, you, I'm sure you come across a lot of women, whether they're mechanics, whether they're part vendors, whether they are administrative people in the automotive industry, you realize it's not very diverse. And I would like to see it be more colorful. Yeah, I agree with you. It, even if you take male, female, if you take gender out of it and you just mm -hmm. purely race in the industry, it's a lot of white people. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's just no two ways about it. And I could not agree with you more. And that's um, my partner and I often talk about how we want the Femcanic Garage company to represent all faces and finding that diversity can be challenging to be honest because it, it there's a lot less women than men in the industry and then when you drill down to mexican or uh black or it, it's it's even a incredibly smaller population and that's something that i'm very proud of with Femcanic Garages, I've had multiple races on this podcast, and I think it's important to voice that and to hear different voices around it. I agree. I, I, even for me, then 
demographics, you know, I'm in California, so we're we're like a mud, right? You you see everything and everything. There's biracial marriages and even when I never realized I was in one until somebody told me I was in one. It's one of those human nature things that you don't realize it until somebody points it out and I looked at Bernard I was like, Oh, yeah, crap, we're in a biracial marriage. It feels weird when people say it like that I don't see him as white. Yeah. I just see him as some guy, right? right? So even for for me, that's one of like one of the best things about what I do. That's what fuels my passion to create change because I know I'm good at what I do, but I wish I didn't have to work 10 times harder to be heard because I'm a, I'm a girl. And then I add on top of that, that I'm, I'm Latino, you know, I'm a Latina and, and then it's like, well, I'm adding more crap to it. It's hard for even people to take you seriously on what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and we, we just have to work hard. Uh, I, and I want to let women know that you can have a family, you can be a wife, you can be a boss in this industry because I'm doing it. You're not going to be good at every hat that you wear throughout the day, but you can do it. You know, I'm nothing extraordinary. I'm an ordinary person that has a lot of challenges in her life and has the good thing about that and everything else that we talked about today, all the bad stuff, all the negative, the cancer, the, you know, biracial marriage, the step adoption kid, like all of that shaped my, my, my life. And, and I see good in all the bad because I know that I could do it. And I want people to know that if you're dedicated, I want females to know you do whatever you want. You know, as long as you're willing to work for it, whatever you, you want to be a mechanic, you could do it. You want to be a pilot, you could do it. You want to change oil, you could do it. You want to run a, a $1 million company in the most expensive county in, in, in the nation, you could do it. I'm doing it. You can do it, but you've got to be willing to work hard. You, you can be a wife, you can be a boss, you can be a mom, you're not going to be good at all of that. One day you're going to be a great boss, you might suck as a, a wife, you might come home and be an okay mom, but tomorrow you might be a great mom. And you might suck as a boss, but you got to be willing to accept those changes to know that you're not going to be able to do 100% in every hat that you wear, but you're going to be good at it at least. And Michelle, I think this leads perfectly into the fourth question. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in the industry when you feel stuck, unsupported, or discouraged? I think it's knowing that I don't know everything. And I think that's what makes me very good at what I do. Because I I know my weaknesses. I know that I'm impatient, so I, I try to be more patient. I know that things don't come as easy as they should um, because I learned to be part of this industry. I didn't go to school to, to own an automotive, uh, you know, business. I, I was a cop for God's sake, you know, ask me anything about laws. I know that, but I had to learn and I, I am extremely resourceful. I, I learned to say, Hey, bef- I have to think about it constantly. I got to stay educated. I, I need to understand personally that, I need to be self-aware of my weaknesses to be able to be successful. You know, I fail constantly at stuff, but that's what makes me successful to know that I am not good at a lot of things, but I have to stick it through and I got to get better at this stuff. That's what makes me successful to know that I am able to accept that I fail, that I have weaknesses, that 
I know to see qualities around my team on the flaws and the weaknesses that I, I surround myself around people that have qualities that are my weaknesses. And that's what makes us successful. Very well said. In the final question, what is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the skilled trades industry? I just want them to know that um, you can you can do it, man. It's just, it's just so sad. You know, I, I, I hear women tell me, like, I would never be able to do what you do. Like, even my sisters tell me sometimes, like, you're crazy. Like, I wouldn't be able. Why not? Like, you can do it. People think it's something so hard or extraordinary. And maybe I don't sound as humble when I tell you, but it's really not that hard. Like, you can do this stuff. You just have to put a lot of thought and hard work into it and be motivated and women in our industry like one of my good friends part of the network we were talking about she's a parts manager the only female parts manager at a local dealership and she does not have a group part of that and i'm so blessed to be aftermarket and i mean like you i mean you were there you were at the conference you're joined by like all these women that have the same they're just human beings their mothers or wives some are single some are career oriented, some are family oriented. And to know that you, there's people out there like you to doing this stuff, like don't get unmotivated, fuel your passion. Know that even put yourself in my shoes, you know, think of me listeners when you guys want to give up or you guys think I'm stuck. This is hard. Like it sucks being a girl. Like when you're talking to part vendors and they don't take you seriously, or then they say, Oh, you're an owner. Like, like you're, like you smell or something, they look at you like, really? Um, think, like, if I could do all of this with all the challenges on my life, and I'm only 34 years old, uh, you guys could do it. Like, with less challenges of that, there's a lot. And if they want to reach out to me, I know Jamie's going to put uh, my social media on here. Reach out, DM me if you guys want to you can actually share that now michelle yeah so how, how can folks uh, how can folks and people connect with uh, you well through the shop um you guys can go to www.dubclinic.com um you can reach us on instagram or facebook uh our uh, social media names are dub clinic you can reach us through info at dubsanatomy.org um you we have twitter the names are the same Dubs Anatomy, um, you please, if you anybody wants to reach out, has questions, you can email me. My email address is michelle at dubclinic.com. And if you guys want to link up, have questions, I'm always willing to help and provide information or guidance and anything I'm, that I can. You know, I can only share what has worked for me. Um, not that it would work for any of the listeners, but anything that I can contribute, I'm willing to help. Awesome. Michelle, thank you so much for being willing to be in the driver's seat today and share a little bit of your background. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you, Jamie. Mi nombre es Michelle Tenzi. Soy la dueña de Dubsonet y yo soy una femtenet. Ellie from Ellie's Garage is in the driver's seat next. She is a 15-year-old girl restoring a 1965 Ford Falcon with her dad. Her father is a professional videographer, and he is documenting Ellie's journey from start to finish. Join me next week as Ellie shares what it is like being a teenager restoring a classic car. Until next time, Femcanics. 
Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribed for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?